The Psalms are a favorite Old Testament book for me. They're poetic, and even though they're ancient, they're elegant and they're highly readable. They tend to reflect raw emotions like pain and joy. A psalm I'd like to look at was written sometime, perhaps a long time, after the Israelites returned to the land of Israel after their forced exile by the Babylonians. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians, and the Persians then allowed the Israelites to return home. Importantly, Cyrus the Great, the leader of the Persians, chose to set the people of God free because he felt they would be more cooperative with the Persians if they were happy living in their own land and practicing their religion freely. The point of Psalm 126 is to tell us about the joy felt by God's people when they're lifted up and out of oppression. This is a psalm of ascent offered by thankful Jews as they made religious pilgrimages. Because it refers to reaping and sowing, Christians often use Psalm 126 during Thanksgiving time. Here's a little piece of it. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. But what motivated this psalm? Well, obviously the Israelites were offering thanks for regaining their land, including Jerusalem, their holy city. But let's look at the broader context. Why did God arrange for them to be able to go home? It has to do with the Old Covenant the agreement between God and the Israelites. In the Bible, we call it a covenant, but the Old Testament authors, in the way they describe this covenant, were probably influenced by something called a suzerain contract. This was a concept in wide use during the time and in the place where much of the Old Testament was written. A suzerain contract is something where one of the two parties, the suzerain, wields the true power. The suzerain sets up the conditions of the contract, but both sides have to follow their responsibilities under the contract. Often the suzerain was a king or a powerful invader, and the second party were the people of an area that had been conquered or absorbed. In the Old Testament covenant, God was, of course, the suzerain. But as with any good contract, the two parties received something of reasonably equal value. Here is how God engineered the suzerain contract with the Israelites. God promised to provide three things. One, land. Two, progeny or descendants. And three, God's blessing. In return, the Israelites had to live according to certain rules of morality. In the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, the captivity of the Israelites in Babylon is presented as a punishment for the Israelites not honoring their side of the covenant with God, the suzerain. Their crime consisted of practicing idolatry. 
This is a recurring theme in the Old Testament, God using the armies of enemies of the Israelites to punish them when they didn't follow their side of their covenant with God. But the people had eventually turned back to God, and they thus earned God's favor. So they were able to return to Jerusalem. The Israelites, and then later the Jews, had to do certain things to get God's protection. That's how the Old Covenant worked. But we don't live under the suzerain contract of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. We do have a covenant with God, however. The biggest requirement of that covenant by far is that we have faith in God. But we don't have to follow a complex system of laws. The New Covenant is sometimes called the Covenant of Grace, and it says that we earn God's favor simply by having faith. The gifts of the New Covenant thus come freely and do not have to be earned, like the gifts and the protections of the Old Covenant. But we still depend on God coming to our rescue. And just as God often used other people to not just punish, but save the chosen people, God will use people to save us. God used Cyrus the Great of Persia to free the people of God and send them back to Jerusalem. Cyrus also ordered the rebuilding of the destroyed temple. God can plant people in our lives, too, to rescue us. Often the most vulnerable people in society are children. Consider the Gospel of Mark. There's a story from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9 that happens to come at the end of a passage where Jesus' disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest. This was common among Mediterranean men in ancient times. They competed to see who was the most honored. In this story, Jesus wants to teach them about humility, because that's one of the things Jesus asks of us, to be humble, to be modest. Importantly, in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds, children were actually held in low regard and were expected to be obedient and highly dependent upon adults and to stay out of the way. Here's a quote from that story from chapter 9 of Mark. Taking a child, Jesus placed it in their midst, and putting his arms around it, he said to them, Whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. Children didn't have the freedom that children in our society have today. In fact, the Bible translation I just quoted is the New American Version, Revised Edition. I chose it deliberately to illustrate that in some translations, the child Jesus refers to in this passage is called not him or her, but rather it. So in this quote from Mark, Jesus is identifying himself with the lowest members of society by showing his love for a child, for an it. 
He's telling his disciples that they should do the same. And in fact, Jesus is telling them that whatever they do for a child or for some other lowly person, they are doing for Jesus and ultimately for God. Remember that in the New Covenant, God's or Jesus's love, God's protection, like God's protection of this child, is completely unearned. Starting in seventh grade, I picked citrus with Mexican migrant workers. I would ride my bike to the shacks that Sun Kissed would provide for them, getting there not long after dawn. We would climb into the back of trucks. We would sit facing each other along two benches that ran down the sides of each truck. At the beginning of the picking season, each of us was issued a large canvas sack with a shoulder strap, a pair of clippers, and two pairs of long leather gloves. The gloves were very important. The boys picked mostly lemons because the ladders were shorter than the ladders used with orange trees, but the lemon trees had sharp thorns. One morning, as I was riding out in a truck, I opened my canvas bag and realized that I had grabbed two left gloves. That meant that I had no glove for my right hand, my clipping hand. The thorns would shred my hand and my forearm. I was panic-stricken, horrified. But across from me was an elderly man with whom I had picked several times. It was common for the older men to pick with the boys, and the younger men would pick oranges on the taller ladders. I knew that this elderly man sent almost all of what he earned back to Mexico to help his daughter feed his grandchildren. That was his life, to provide for children. He wore a small wooden cross around his neck every day. This man, who didn't speak English, reached out across the truck and took one of my left gloves. Then, finger by finger, he turned it inside out. I was rescued. I now had a right glove. The man gave me a big grin. This man had found another child to serve. He was joyous. That man who performed the miracle of transforming a left glove into a right glove didn't have to help me. He could have just sat there silently perhaps feeling sorry for himself because he earned so little and had almost nothing in life. But he was living a life that mirrored that of Jesus, giving unearned love and protection to a child. The men I picked with took to heart this teaching that powerless people like children should be embraced. When I was picking in the orchards, the men looked after the boys. A foreman might give a boy like me a hard time, perhaps because I was filling the bottom of my crates with overripe fruit that I had picked up off the ground. The point is that when a foreman verbally laid into one of the boys, the men would climb down their ladders and come between the foreman and the boy. If you want to yell at someone, 
Yell at a man, they would explain. As part of their contract with Sunkist, the pickers from Mexico were given a hot lunch in the orchard every day. Since I wasn't a migrant, I wasn't supposed to get any of that food. But the men would insist that I eat. They didn't get any extra food because I was there, but they shared what they had. To them, it was ridiculous for me to not eat. I was a child. They were believers. I was to be cared for. That care was completely unearned on my part, as dictated by the New Covenant. It's often the people who have the least in the world, who take the least from it, who show the most grace for others. That's the New Covenant in action. That's how our God wants us to live. And don't forget, we receive an immediate earthly joy when we offer grace to others. Just like that elderly man and the men who fed me in the field and defended me from the foreman, they received the joy of serving me in the name of the new covenant. Those men did more than serve me. They did more than miraculously turn a left glove into a right glove. They did more than feed and defend me. They built my faith. Those days that I spent picking citrus in a hot orchard, breathing in the sickening, dense smell of the pesticides, taught me what it meant to be a man so that later in life I would understand that I needed to honor that request that Jesus made of us to always look after those who need protection, who need help, who need rescuing, and to remember that that is a key aspect of being a true Christian, one who is not a phony, one who does live according to the example of Jesus Christ.